Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. For this episode, Brian and I sat down with Donna Murch and Kay Whitlock to think through the question, how do we get through this? Donna posed this question on social media a few weeks ago, and that post is what motivated this conversation. We begin by thinking through who the we is in that question, and then we attempt to define what we mean by getting through this. Donna points out that racial capitalism and the unraveling of already weak systems is making it clear who the we is. I share how this moment has for me triggered an eerie feeling of calmness that is a trauma response to other experiences in my life. Kay shares how this moment has allowed her to stop pretending and to think about how we can use our collective energy. We talk about the importance of imagination in this moment and the need to share the testimony of people directly impacted by this crisis. Finally, we discuss the rise of authoritarianism and how media reports of COVID-19 are filtered through a racial ethno-national lens We end our conversation with some thoughts on mutual aid and how this crisis has the potential for teaching us greater responsibility for each other. Kay Whitlock, a longtime activist and organizer in progressive social justice movements, lives in Missoula, Montana. She writes frequently on issues of structural violence in U.S. society. She is co-author of Queer Injustice, the criminalization of LGBT people in the United States and considering hate, violence, goodness, and justice in American culture and politics. She is currently working with sociologist Nancy Heitzig on a forthcoming book, Prison Break, The Deceptive Terrain of Criminal Justice Reform. Donna Murch is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. Professor Murch's teaching and research specializations are historical studies of mass incarceration, war on drugs, black power and civil rights, California, social movements, and post-war U.S. cities. She is currently completing a new trade press book entitled Crack in Los Angeles, Policing the Crisis and the War on Drugs, which explores the militarization of law enforcement, the social history of drug consumption and sale, and the political economy of mass incarceration in late 20th century California. In October 2010, Merch published the award-winning monograph, Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, with the University of North Carolina Press, which won a Phyllis Wheatley Prize in December 2011. She has published articles in the Journal of American History, Journal of Urban History, OAH Magazine of History, Black Scholar, Souls, Perspectives, New Politics, and Jacobin. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you both for being here with us. It's really a treat to speak with both of you. I admire both of your works, so it's very wonderful to have you here. Um, and today we're going to talk about, you know, amid this pandemic and the economic crisis that's stemming from it, uh, and just sort of the general crisis that's been brewing in the background um, for forever, you know, we wanted to talk about this question of how do we get through this? It's sort of a question on a lot of people's minds right now. And, you know, as we're staring down potentially, you know, uh, anywhere from a couple months to a dozen plus months of finding a way to get through this. 
um, it's a question that I think is worth exploring. And so um, I think an important place to start is for us to be explicit about the we in the how do we get through this and you know how the getting through it can look very different to a lot of different people depending on their situation and acknowledging that some people are not going to get through it. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is a little bit of a meta question, but uh, before we get into like the actual strategies for getting through it, you know, what you might do to get through it. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you think about the, the question of getting through this, you know, what does it mean to you? Like, is it getting back to sort of the normalcy that we had before? Is it more just about survival and pro or processing this? Is it something else? What does getting through it mean to you? Um, should I start? Sure. Yeah, wh whomever. It's totally fine. So I posted that question on my Facebook page about a week ago. And I posted it at a specific moment where two people I know personally have died. And a lot of significant numbers of other people I know are sick. And I lived in New York for a long time. So most of my networks are people over 50 who live in New York, New Jersey area. And I posted that just at a real moment of crisis. And I'm still thinking about it. I mean, I meant it in an emotional way just to have us figure out a way to talk about how we're, how we're going to deal with all the different manifestations of the current crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, one of the most difficult things about this is it's shining a light on the incredible violence of American society where we have a white supremacist president and the utter, utter neglect of the population, the gutting of the public health system in the United States, and then the overwhelming disproportionate rate of black deaths. And so I think the question can mean many things. I wrote it at a moment just of real, just almost being unable to stand it. And it's a combination of being sad, but also being very, very angry. So that's the original spirit in which it was said. I remember that uh, Facebook post, Donna, that you put out, and I, I remember a number of people uh, responding to it, including me. And one of the things I had said was that I was trying to find some kind of a way to not necessarily find a balance, but to to handle both rage and grief that were coming in such extraordinary measure that that it was very hard when i think of of what this is i think we're in a time where it's either a collapse or an unraveling of multiple systems it's political it's economic, it's ecological. And when I say economic, in this country, it's racial capitalism. And the how are we going to get through it, as you say, Brian, is not, there's no universal we. There are a lot of different we's, and a lot of different we's with different vulnerabilities. I think a lot of what 
Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, who wrote The Golden Gulag, which I consider probably the best available book on on explaining mass incarceration, uh, she defines racism as the group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. And it feels like we're getting a crash course in that and in a kind of systems unraveling that is so rapid. Mm -hmm. It It's not as if everything was strong and decided to collapse. It's that everything's been so weak and so fractured for so long. Our healthcare system, our political system, our economic system, this unbelievable wide chasm between the ultra wealthy and everybody else and then between the people who are on the very very lowest end of anything material of anything good that this society thinks that it has to offer. Yeah. Yeah, thank you um, for that, uh, Donna and Kay. Um, and I appreciate everything that you both uh, just said. I actually just got off of a call with uh, Ruthie and uh, we were talking about, you know, these very things. So it was just all of this is kind of um, overlapping uh, for me to today. Um, and there was something that you said, Kay, in your response to uh, Donna's question um, that really resonated um, with me. And I want to, you know, go back to that a little bit, um, if, if you don't mind. Um, but it was really about how do we hold the rage and grief simultaneously, but also how whatever's happening right now, um, you know, you said it was made of steel, right? And it's something um, because I've been asked over the last several days and whatever calls I'm on um, is how I'm doing, right? And, you know, I've had to tell people that I, I'm, remarkably eerily calm in this moment, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm angry as hell, but it's a very different kind of thing that's happening. And I haven't quite been able to put words to it, but it's also eerily calm in ways that I've not experienced before in crises, right? Um, so I don't know if you wanted, uh, if either of you wanted to talk about that, um, and and yeah. Um, well, I think that one of the problems right now is the, how to organize politically. Mm -hmm. So I think that the calmness has to do with the social isolation, which is the solution in order to not spreading the virus and the disease. So I think everyone I know is doing organizing calls on Zoom and telephone and using all the media available to us. But nevertheless, the usual ways that we express anger and we protest and we make visible political discontent aren't available to us right now. So I think that that's 
like one of the biggest challenges. Um, for me, I think what's so hard about this moment is that we're just seeing writ large the valuation of capital and money over people's lives and the enormous bailout that's gone to really to support the big corporations in Wall Street with relatively small amounts of money going to people's survival. Um, I just, you know, I've lived through many things in the United States. And I think this maybe most of all has embodied this, the incredible violence of racial capitalism and this use of the market and serving the economy as being all important. So I think that one of the things we have to figure out is, first of all, how do we remain informed about this? I was following this crisis very carefully up until last week, and it became so painful for me. I just actually had to take a break mm -hmm. because of the viciousness that's happening and not having this immediate um, you know, solace of being able to go out and express it publicly. So I think there's a lot to be said about the organizing that needs to be done. And I'm not always so much focused on how things make me feel. But in this, it feels, it reminds me, and it brings up all the post-traumatic stress from the AIDS crisis and the loss of people throughout my life. So I think people are also bearing an enormous weight. And for those of us that are not essential workers and are able to stay home, I think we're dealing with the psychological challenge of this. But it's an entirely different one than people that are forced to go out and work or people that have no form of economic support at all. That's true. Kim, I'm interested when you talk about that kind of center of calm. Um, I was telling Brian a little bit ago before we started the recording that I've been having two kinds of dreams. One uh, kind of dream are flat out nightmares of the kind I have not had in so many years. In fact, the last time I remember dreams that were quite so nightmarish were the years of HIV AIDS. And I was living in Philadelphia at the time, uh, back East. And it was just a nightmare of a time. So I'm having those dreams. And I'm also having dreams that are so deep and there is a center of calmness and usually some kind of image at the center of the dream, often an image of um, a familiar place, but it's very still and it's very quiet and it's extremely beautiful. And that's a feeling of calmness I have also sometimes had during this. And I don't feel calm about the pandemic. I don't feel calm exactly about collapsing feelings, but I'm wondering to a certain extent <clears throat> if for me the calm calmness doesn't come from letting go 
of everything I knew that I was just supposed to do and may have had a secret belief that if I just kept doing the same certain things, that somehow it would, that would kind of solve the situation. Instead, I find myself in a situation of incredible openness to new ways of seeing, to new ways of thinking, to new ways of building relationships with people I know, with people I don't know, um, individual relationships, collective relationships, and it's it's strange. There is a website uh, I go to uh, a lot called the Dark Mountain Project, and it's not to everyone's taste, but in 2009, a group of people came together uh, out of trying to deal with the, the twinned economic and ecological collapses. And a lot of stuff comes out of that, different writing, different art, different storytelling. And it's not as if they have an agenda that you have to follow. But it was one of the first groups I saw collectively talking about a time not unlike this in a very clear way. And they say, those who witness extreme social collapse at first seldom describe any deep revelation about the truths of human existence. When they do men what they do mention, if asked, is their surprise at how easy it is to die. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how we become accustomed to the pattern of ordinary life. And they say what war correspondents and relief workers report in a time of any great catastrophe is not only the fragility of the fabric, but the speed with which it can unravel. And they say, and so we find ourselves, all of us together, poised trembling on the edge of a change so massive that we have no way of gauging it. None of us knows where to look, but all of us know not to look down. Secretly, we all think we are doomed. Even the politicians think this, even the environmentalists. Some of us deal with it by going shopping. Some deal with it by hoping it is true. Some give up in despair. Some work frantically to try and fend off the coming storm. Our question is, what would happen if we looked down? What might we see? And I don't, I don't have an easy answer for that. I do have a sense of relief of, I can stop pretending now with anybody, with myself. I can stop pretending now that things are anything other than exactly what they are right now. And we are going to have to make up some new stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. not that everything we know should be thrown away. Of course not. Everything we know is valuable. But nothing we have is quite enough for this time. And so we're going to have to go into that sort of calm place and find the best in ourselves and each other. Yeah. 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 No, I, everything just said really, you know, just sitting here uh, shaking my head. Yes. Um, to, to all of it. And, you know, not trying to give the impression that, you know, I'm good, 
No, no, I understand. But it's the kind of calm that comes from, I think, um, and yeah, I know, Kay, you know this, um, Donna, you and I recently became uh, friends on social media, um, but I have two sons that are currently sentenced to life um, and are serving their time in Delaware. Um, and, you know, incarceration is exhausting. Um, it's expensive. It is uh, around the clock, nonstop. It's your daydreams, your nightmares. It's uh, every single moment. I don't care whether you're peeing or you're watering, you know, your lawn um, or whatever. You're always thinking about what is happening with them, right? And there's no compartmentalizing. There's no you know, whatever, it's like um, their prison also had, um, there was a rebellion and uprising uh, a couple of years ago there. Uh, and, you know, the fear of uh, around their safety, you know, is always, always ever present, right? It's, it's nonstop. Um, and it's not something that we tend to talk about a lot in in these circles or in, you know, abolitionist circles, you know, even in abolitionist circles is the kind of emotional labor and the toll that that, um, that incarceration takes on people, right? So it's always, I'm always waiting uh, for the other shoe to drop, right? Yes. And how bad can it get, right? So with this crisis and, you know, in the early days of the crisis, um, I started putting together, you know, jotting down my thoughts for how I handle things um, with my sons and with other incarcerated people when they're having either an individual crisis or there's something happening in their prison. So I decided, you know, okay, the best use of my energy in those early days was not for me to consume every news article that came out or to keep looking at my timeline, but it was to take what I already knew and the strategies that I was, you know, that were helping me and them uh, and putting those things down, right? And so I put my energy into that for a couple of weeks before we opened it up and, you know, asked other people to to contribute. Um, and it was a kind of like, it wasn't automatic. It was just, I need to do this because I know my future self is going to thank that past person for doing that work because when I am, you know, and it happened, you know, about a week ago where I just didn't have energy to respond to calls, to look at email, to do, you know, pretty much anything. And I knew, you know, um, I knew that having done that, I could now, you know, refer to that and I could share that. And it, you know, has, become a different thing than it was, you know, when I originally uh, imagined it. And, you know, it's just putting, doing that work, but also rethinking all of the kinds of things that we already know and do. Um, but I think that a lot of us as abolitionists already think about these things, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, we think about the kind of care work that you know we're engaged in, right? And who who's essential right now, right? <laughs> so we've been talking about you know um, or thinking through um, 
all of that and what it means to be uh, in solidarity with other people. And what is this community when you can't go face to face and be with, you know, in community and how do we, um, yeah, how do we, how do we get through this, you know, as Donna um, put it, it's like, how do we get through this, including all of the grief. And one of the things that um, I'd been thinking about and, you know, it's not something I want to think about, but it's what happens when someone in inside dies, right? Because no one's giving us answers about that, right? So we're also, we're in limbo. Like if you're out here, it's, you know, there's a process and, you know, things that, that go on and you can, you know, call someone and they're going to tell you, okay, this is what you do. Um, that's not present in prisons, right? And no one is wants to talk about it. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's not focus on that. We just want to, you know, get people out. And I'm like, some people aren't going to make it out. And I want to have that conversation. And I, I you know, like, it, it, so I don't know. So I'm, I'm coming up against the limits of, you know, of certain things and still remaining in a place where I'm like, okay. Um, and I said eerily calm because I find it scary, right? I find it scary where it's like, you know, not that I feel like, you know, and I don't usually run around like a chicken with my head cut off um, in a crisis. I tend to be fairly calm in those situations as well. But um, yeah, like it's it's complicated. I don't have I don't have answers. So when I saw Donna's question and I saw, you know, your response, Kay, um, that was really, you know, thoughtful. Um, I was like, okay, maybe we can, you know, we can sit down and, and talk about this and, and try to, you know, imagine um, something else. I don't know. It's, it, you know, it's interesting because I talk for a living, like as an academic, and I have been strangely silent during most of this crisis because I'm finding myself in that horizon where it's hard to find words. And the level of loss along all the lines of vulnerability, you know, social vulnerability, racial and economic vulnerability, for me, this crisis is it's sort of opening up. It's like a culmination of things that I have seen my entire life. And I think so many of us are experiencing, um, as you're talking about it, Kim, we're re-experiencing other traumas and other losses. And it's very, it's just very, very hard. I also think core institutions of the United States are in real, real danger right now. The election that just took place in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. that even though there was an attempt to hold off on the election, you had the Republican-dominated state Supreme Court and then the U.S. Supreme Court forced the election to go through and we're just in such an incredibly precarious moment where we can't leave our houses and that's the right thing to do for public health concerns but I think that figuring out how we deal with this crisis and the enormous trauma also as friends of ours and family members I'm finding it hard to even say the words are threatened. I'll put it like that, are threatened. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, psychologically, we have to find a way to deal with it. And I feel like right now I'm sort of battling with that psychological, just trying to take it all in because I'm, at this moment, I'm not particularly optimistic. What I see on the horizon is very, very frightening to me. And I'm really concerned about the bailout that is completely unmonitored. You know, our president just fired the oversight person for the bailout, and they're going to be trillions and trillions of dollars given out to major corporations. And the polluters were able to insert language to deregulate the extractive industry and polluters during a crisis in which people are dying from respiratory illness. You know, it has that element to it that is, um, it is a nightmare and it's a political nightmare. The virus itself is its own problem, but in some ways very much like the Irish potato famine or any number of crises that have an ecological and biological component to them. But the thing that really made them a horror were the decisions made by people in places of power. And I think that that's why this holding rage and sorrow at the same time is that there's such a clear track of human culpability. And it's very hard right now. I mean, I could give prescriptive answers about how we need to organize because I do think this is a, such an important moment for workers of all kinds to organize. But the questions raised about people that are incarcerated, um, all different types of incarceration, um, these populations are in the greatest jeopardy. And I was just reading a story about prisoners on Rikers Island, incarcerated people on Rikers Island being forced to bury the dead in hazmat suits. So it was reported. Um, I think we have to figure out ways to survive this and to figure out how to be of assistance to others. But I do think the sense of paralysis is really hard to get through right now. So I'm kind of being gentle with myself and letting myself mourn and then figure out how to be useful to people. Mm -hmm. I think combined with I th everything you say, Donna, I totally agree with. When I saw the drone footage today of the mass graves mm -hmm. out on Hart Island, I... It's that kind of constant balancing act. How how do we understand that? Uh, Kim, I don't have sons in prison, but I have friends in prison, and I understand that feeling of every single day saying, my God, you know, what's what's really going on? And sometimes a lot of people want to have a more abstract conversation about that, but what also strikes me is how many people are going through so many versions of of terror about their loved ones, you know, about terror of a parent who's in a nursing home that isn't particularly well managed, terror about what happens uh, as even the bailout becomes weaponized for an austerity agenda that will be used then to further eviscerate any shreds, any little shards of social programming, of 
expenditure for the public good, public expenditure for the public good that exist, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, SNAP, Social Security income, all those kinds of things, I think, are resting on a very precarious ledge right now. And I'm trying not to dive into just such deep despair that I'll never come out. And one of the things that I think for me, that those moments that I have of calm, and as you say, Kim, the calmness doesn't mean everything's okay. (laughs) It doesn't even necessarily mean I'm okay. It's just a calm that comes in a in an odd way. And what I'm starting to find just for myself is that that's the place where I think I can begin to transmute some of the fear into love. And by love, I don't mean sentimental, sappy love. I do not mean false cheer and glittery uplift love. I mean gritty kind of love and the love that is sufficient enough to help me shift and to help me shift in my work with others from saying Trump is going to kill us, Trump is killing us, this whole system is killing us, and shift it to I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know how we're going to do it. And we may just have to sail into that storm, not knowing what lies on the other side, but we are going to defeat you and your cronies somehow, you genocidal racist motherfuckers. And that is what we are going to do. And we are going to figure out how to do it together. And it doesn't mean that there's just an easy way to organize enough, but it does mean that whatever... I do trust and I do believe that we can sharpen our political, economic, and ecological imaginations in ways that we've only just dipped into. And I agree with you, Kim, that I think abolitionist movements are filled with imagination. And I think this is a time to go deeper and to go more practical, as you say, Donna, to be useful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, something that, you know, keeps coming up over and over again is that, you know, people are calling for a return to normal. Um, (laughs) And I'm like, hell no. What are you talking about? Like, this is, this is why we're here. I mean, this is why we have, you know, and are experiencing all of these shortages. This is why, you know, we don't have the health care that we need. We don't have any of the things that we need, um, you know, uh, for our communities and, you know, the anything, right? Like, we just don't have the things. I mean, shit, we don't even have toilet paper, you know, in a lot of communities. Like, this is where this is where we are. And as someone who grew up in, you know, Dominican Republic and has experienced a lot of the kinds of things that seem to be happening. And, you know, something I've been talking about with, you know, with my partner in terms of, you know, preparations and we're not, you know, we're not preppers. We, you know, have, we have enough food, thank goodness. And uh, we are, relatively comfortable um by comparison to a lot of um other people and you know i'm grateful 
for that. And I recognize that for, for what it is, but, um, you know, also thinking about what might be coming, um, as well. And that it's not unrealistic, you know, like I said a, a few weeks ago, you know, to my partner, I said, um, services are going to get cut back. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, well, we should anticipate that, you know, everyone who's out there collecting trash, uh, will get hit by this and they're going to either have to slow it down or stop it. And sure enough, you know, the city of Philadelphia put out an announcement a couple days ago, basically saying that they're only collecting recycling every other week. And I said, okay, you know, let's make sure that we have ways to contain this stuff because, there are consequences to them not collecting trash, right? And, you know, it's like, and that's just one example, right, of the kinds of things that we're having to think about or that folks are having to think about now that they didn't have to think about before, right? And I just, you know, I'm like, and it, it's not automatic for me. It's like, you know, I, um, I spend a lot of time you know, on, on a lot of this stuff, not just reading it academically, you know, uh, or participating in, you know, conferences and what have you, but, uh, also in my own personal life and drawing on my experience, you know, like I said, having grown up in, in a country where there were rolling blackouts, right. <laughs> where they're, um, having water, you know, on your tap was not guaranteed. Right. And it's like we, we have that condition. We have that situation now in this country. I mean, it's called Detroit. Right. And it's like so, it, you know, but to think about that happening in places like New York City and, you know, it, it just seems so far removed for a lot of people. And I, I like I don't. I don't know. And I'm, I'm putting that out there, not because I have answers. I can share what I've done, but that's not the point of this conversation. It's more for us to think through this stuff together. And um, I, I've been reading the book that uh, I've been quoting from on uh, social media. And I'm uh, going to share it again. It's uh, For Health Autonomy, Horizons of Care Beyond Austerity, Reflections from Greece um, by the Care Notes Collective. And the introduction is written by Sylvia Federici. And it's wonderful. And it's so important and relevant to the current moment in terms of helping us think about our relationships to one another, um, our relationships to the means of production, um, what it means to, you know, um, how can we rethink uh, what is currently happening and how can we reclaim a kind of collective memory and capacity um, so that we can move forward beyond, you know, beyond this moment? Like, I don't just want to respond to what's happening. I want us to think about well beyond the current moment, right? Like 10 years, 20 years down the line. Um, and that's just been, that's been tough. That's been tough having that conversation with a lot of people that aren't used to having to think about those issues, um, including, you know, people in my own family um, that I've been engaged uh, or engaging in those conversations. So, yeah. No, one of the biggest things that I'm afraid of and I would say this has been true for about the last 10 to 15 years, is that I think globally we are moving into a different moment. 
and we're seeing the transition from industrial democracies in the wealthy countries with large manufacturing bases and limitations on suffrage, but nevertheless, the guarantee of universal suffrage, we're moving away from that and we're moving towards a more authoritarian model that is um, manifesting itself all over the world. So I think for me, I do think it's important to have vision and to imagine how to fight this. But I think we're moving into something that COVID-19 is the world crisis that allows us to hold it up and look at what its consequences are. But I think that the worldwide surge of the right is very serious and there's a structural piece to it, which is why it's happening in all of the different countries. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, this moment for me is very, very hard because I don't, right now, I don't see a clear way forward. I think that we can organize. We need to talk about how to do that, but I would be, I can't say that I see a clear way forward through this. One of the things that I feel strongly is that I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, but we have completely deregulated drilling, you know, fracking was fracking before fracking where people had like gas drilling in their backyard. Our next door neighbor had a, had literally a rig in their backyard, which is not a big, it wasn't even a big backyard. It was just normal. And just growing up with asthma and, you know, most people I know having asthma. And then the minute I moved away from home, it went away. So I think that the, the environmental justice piece of this is enormous. And one thing that I know I would like to see more of is I'd like to see more testimonies of the people most being affected by this. I posted a testimony that I found online of a woman from the Bronx whose sister had died. This is like March 21st. And what she had to say was so profound. She gave a whole critique of New York City and of Cuomo and the healthcare system. And she explained how her sister had gone to Columbia Presbyterian three times and was unable to get a test. They refused her a test despite her having double pneumonia. And so holding up the voices of the people that are being the most affected. And it was really powerful to listen to her. And I've been trying to search for other places where I can find testimony online so we can learn from the people who are most affected. I think that is absolutely, absolutely key. <clears throat> the, the climate ecological piece feels so central and it feels central beyond it's an issue. It's a way of understanding how horribly, horribly, horribly distorted our relationships are. And, and it's, it is global. It's not just, it's not just here, but I've been thinking about this, the relationships of people to nature, the relationships of, of different groups of people, the relationship of people to the idea of the common good, because so much has been telling us for so many years that the market will save us, that entrepreneurial freedom is the way to go, that the individual accomplishment is, is what leads you through. And all of that is collapsing now. And there are some people willing to see it and some people who aren't willing to see it. But Donna, when you talk about uh, the, the personal accounts of the people who have been 
through some of the worst moments of this crisis and some of the loneliest and who have been unable to get the help or the care they needed to people they deeply love. That's probably the way we begin to understand this total breakdown in a relationship in a more concrete way, in a real way. The rise of authoritarianism is extremely real. I have a friend in Germany who is a high environmental uh, official in the national government. Before she joined the national government, she worked for the city of Berlin doing some just amazing things. And we have been all emailing back and forth during this time. And she talks about, even though Germany is doing much better than than some many other countries during this time, she talks about her fear about the rise of, of neo-Nazis and the rise of ethno-nationalism and the rise of, of, of this violent, nihilistic spirit that she sees going on around. Could I, could I add something to that? Please. Because I think that, you know, one of my moments of great sorrow last week was seeing a Gallup poll that said that there was 60% support for Trump for his handling of COVID. It's since mm -hmm. gone down this week, thank God. But I was just puzzling over that. And I went and I thought, mm, I want to turn on Fox News, see if I can understand this. I watched Fox for about 10 minutes. Then I had to turn it off. But the, the racial framing of this crisis on Fox, and it was essentially an argument that they mentioned very prominently, the, what's happening in New York, what's happening in Detroit, and what's happening in New Orleans. And they were talking about this essentially as an urban disease. Mm -hmm. And in the same way that Trump called it the Chinese virus, they had a complete racial lens and explanation for it. So right. it was the horror of what's happening in the cities. So even that racial ethno-national frame is crucial. But I'll also add that, you know, in the last three days or so, CNN has been covering the racial disparities in death. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm really struck by is the way that they provide a behavioralist model. It's about obesity and essentially lifestyle-related diseases, largely as an explanation. But in sure. that testimony um, of the woman from the Bronx whose sister died, she talked repeatedly about the denial of care. Mm -hmm. Her sister went to the emergency room three times and still couldn't receive care. Mm -hmm. So I think that this being able to hold up the voices of the people that are most affected and people, incarcerated people most of all, and I'm wondering if there's a way that we could work on hearing the voices of people and letting them lead the analysis. Yeah, to, to Donna's point about, you know, centering the voices of, you know, incarcerated people. And that's basically the a lot of what we do here on the podcast. And, um, you know, the uh, this past week, the last few weeks, actually, um, I've been 
involved in a campaign to uh, get one of our friends and colleagues, um, an NYU uh, student, out of Rikers. And um, it was, you know, we, we did an episode with him um, that we posted earlier this week. And, you know, this is, this is someone who, you know, was picked up on a technical violation, um, was sent to uh, several facilities in New York, and then ended up at Rikers Island. They moved him from a facility that didn't have COVID-19 to a place where is, you know, like the hotspot of COVID in New York City, right? And um, the amount of energy and the amount of, you know, effort that people had to put out to get one individual out of Rikers that shouldn't have been there anyway, right? But part of it was that they had suspended um, all, you know, legal proceedings until the end of April, right? So he was going to languish in prison uh, or in, in jail until the end of April or longer um, if, you know, if we didn't do something. Um, and, you know, it just, he describes, and, you know, I'm not going to uh, share everything that, you know, he talked about in the episode, but, you know, he describes the horrible conditions that he was being held in and the kinds of things that he had to experience. And it's the kind of stuff that, you know, I've talked about um, on, on the podcast uh, many, many times, and I talk about on social media all of the time, um, you know, with people being denied sick calls. You know, it's like he he had to beg to get, you know, um, a cough drop and, you know, I think it was a Tylenol, a, a pain reliever, um, and the kinds of neglect that are happening, you know, around people's needs. And you have you know, the various departments of corrections around the country uh, coming out and saying that, you know, they have the crisis uh, handled or that they have, you know, uh, various protocols in place to handle, you know, infectious diseases. And I'm like, that's, that's a lie. That's a fucking lie. There's no way that the DOC that is not equipped to do any of this and can barely handle when someone has a cold is equipped to do infectious disease control when hospitals in this country who are supposed to be doing this can't do that, right? And I mean, it, it just, uh, it's just breathtaking, right? And it's it's a kind of, you know, I describe it as a gaslighting, um, you know, because you say, well, no, I'm getting this, I'm hearing this from incarcerated people, and we treat incarcerated people as if they're all liars and prison officials as if they're all truthful. And, you know, unless you get official word, we're not going to publish or talk about, you know, what's going on. And we're like, you know, Brian and I talk about this a lot. Like a, we spend a lot of time talking about um, the media construction around, you know, um, what's happening with uh, with incarcerated folks and how people can advocate um, for for their needs. But it's just it's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And we, we're getting emails like every day, um, not just from people in the U.S., but from people outside of the U.S. and you know, um, telling us about the conditions uh, in other places. So, you know, can't think of the 
problems that are happening here is isolated or disconnected from the rest of, you know, the kind of global issues that, that are taking place. Like our struggles are interconnected, they're intertwined, and we have to think of them, um, you know, uh, in that way. While yes, you know, a lot of the activism and a lot of the, the actions that happen um, have to be hyper-local, um, we also need to think simultaneously about the broader, you know, the, the broader connections to what's happening um, in other places. I've um, I've been silent mostly because I really loved listening to everything that all of you uh, have been saying. So I really appreciate it. Um, you know, we are running up against time, um, and I I know that uh, folks have other things to do right now. So I kind of wanted to uh, wrap up with some final thoughts, and in particular, I guess I'm wondering. You know, we've talked a bit about. Organizing, you know, that has come up several times. Um, we've talked a, a bit about sort of the the calm, you know, quote unquote, in isolation. And I was saying to Kay earlier before uh, we began recording, you know, I I have felt for a long time, and I'm sure you all have as well, um, that like our culture in general has been increasingly atomized, you know, decade over decade. I felt like people have sort of retreated into themselves uh, more and more, and there's sort of less of a sense of a collective responsibility um, or even like a collective body, you know, a, a group. And that's not to say that there's not people organizing. There's not to say that there's not people doing that work. I'm just saying I that that's sort of like the the cultural milieu that I, that I feel like I witness by and large. And it's a strange thing, you know, to have to... Uh, to at once sort of recognize the responsibility in this moment um, in a lot of different ways that we have to one another, you know, whether it's, you know, when it comes down to social distancing or, or what have you. Um, and at the same time, you know, we can't really be around each other. Uh, and I guess this is just sort of a big rambling way of getting to this question of, how do we how do we come out of this moment with a greater sense of responsibility for one another? How do we recognize sort of our collective responsibility? And how do we not just look at what we need to do in this moment as sort of this individualized, you know, like we, we were talking about the hoarding briefly. And, you know, I think a lot of that just comes from people feeling like, well, there's no one looking out for me, right? So like, I need to go out and like, grab up everything I can to make sure that I have food because if there's food not coming from anywhere else. Right. Um, and I'm alone in my house and I can't go, you know, to, uh, to stay with my family necessarily. Cause I don't want to to, you know, potentially infect them or what have you. And so I guess this is just sort of a big sprawling question of, you know, if you have any thoughts about, the importance or how we sort of recognize our collective responsibility in a moment like this and sort of overcome the distance and the isolation that we're all going through right now to organize collectively um, and and recognize that we have that power together. And it's not about sort of individual choices and our individual capacity to change things. 
Um, this is Donna. I guess, you know, one thing I'm really struck by is I lived in New York for many years. I just moved to Philadelphia about a year and a half ago. So my whole social world is still in New York. And one of the things I'm really struck by is that it's one of the things I always loved about New York and it's playing itself out also in this pandemic is that it's such a place of density in the U.S. And there's a sense of how New Yorkers are interconnected to one another. And sometimes that leads to a lot of aggression <laughs> because people are crammed together in small spaces all the time. And so New York, I wouldn't describe it as a polite city, but it's the city where if I was gonna have a heart attack, I'd wanna have it in New York because I've seen New Yorkers go to enormous lengths to help strangers. And I think that that's because it's a city different than most of the US people live in an interconnected way with enormous amounts of density. And I think, I think it is a challenge to figure out how to be socially reconnected. The hopeful piece about this moment is that you see pe how much people need each other. You know, mm -hmm. suddenly we're all talking on Zoom. I was making a joke on Facebook, like the happiest part of my day is using malware to see other people. Collect all of the data, possibly records us and does God knows what else with it. But you know, you see that how much people need each other. Um, on the other hand, I think that the level of fear that we have all absorbed because of the virus also has that potential to narrow people's circles to the, you know, their circle in social media and their social circle. Mm -hmm. um, and figuring out how to re-knit that community. Um, I know one thing that I would like to be involved in is mutual aid. And one of the things I'm really angry about is that if we can get, if we could simply get tested, if I could get tested and know that I've had the virus, that's what I would do. I would get involved in mutual aid because I've been thinking about that I feel fortunate to be able to work at home and so many people can't. And I would like to be involved in a collective work, especially for people who need the most help. And that's important to me. So. I think we're going to have to consciously work on it. I also think that just on the subject of hoarding, it's interesting because I haven't seen a lot of New Yorkers hoarding. And I think that has a lot to do, again, with the culture of always being surrounded and feeling connected to other people. And the U.S. is an enormously cruel country. And I think most people from other parts of the world think that about the U.S., never mind what we think about ourselves. You know, it's a very atomized country and with it, that expresses enormous amounts of aggression. People express a lot of aggression against each other in this country. So I think mutual aid efforts and figuring out how to be connected beyond our immediate circles. I would agree with an awful lot. Uh, in fact, everything that you just said, Donna, one of the, one of the openings I'm seeing for possibly helping to connect and transform uh, as we try to navigate fear and rage and uncertainty is um, cultivating, not in a didactic sense, but in as real a sense as possible, a sense of interdependence. And it's where you begin to bring together ecologies and politics and economies and social relationships. And I am seeing a lot of a lot more of that. I'm seeing it in what people are, what friends and neighbors are sharing here in Missoula, 
among um, one another. People are sharing videos or articles about what's different in the cities when things are more quiet and what is what's happening in our relationship with each other how are we being torn apart from each other what can we do to mend that how are we beginning to see our relationship with the natural world in a different way that's very very strong uh in i'm seeing it everywhere and i'm seeing it a great deal uh, in Missoula. Now we have a democratic governor, but he happens to be, and, and he's been very good through, through the COVID-19 crisis, I will say, Steve Bullock, but he's not good on energy, you know, so we have lots of fracking in the states and he loves the Keystone pipeline and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm starting to hear people, instead of just sort of signing on to I'm for or against this particular person, I'm starting to see a sense that people aren't quite so willing to believe in a political savior or that somehow just electoral politics is going to do it. I'm seeing people asking and talking with each other, often in very gentle, quiet ways, um, about how to build a stronger sense of interdependence. That can't be a bad thing. Now, Missoula is probably about as different from New York City as you could get, you know, where people tend to be a lot farther apart. And you would think it would be really easy to social, socially distance in a place like that. Not nearly as easy as you think, but Every night, and it may be a small thing, but every night at 8 o'clock, we go outside and people start howling all over. Uh, and we couldn't go out and just sing on our balconies. We don't, First of all, most of us aren't that musically talented, and we're not <laughs> in Italy. We're not going to go out, and uh, we can't go out and clap together because nobody would see us or hear us. But if we go out and we howl, and we howl in specific appreciation of healthcare workers who are being silenced by their corporations, by their CEOs, who are being forbidden to speak about the conditions they are working under and forbidden to speak about what they're really saying, and we howl to recognize the people who are keeping Missoula's free bus lines. You know, our public transportation is free. It's free all the time. It didn't take a crisis to make it free. And somehow people are still trying to make that work because a lot of the essential workers depend on public transportation to use it. So there are these little threads that I think have been invisible to many people that are becoming newly visible in different ways to so many of us. And I think somewhere in there, we will begin to find some richness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, uh, just a couple of words to kind of close us out here, but um, I appreciate what you both uh, said there and um, Brian's framing of that as well at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I wanted to share this uh, 
because I think it's also something that speaks to the kind of possibilities. And as someone with, you know, I have uh, two immune disorders. So uh, several weeks ago, my partner and I made the decision that, you know, I would not leave the house again, um, at least for the foreseeable future, unless, you know, it was an emergency and I had to go to the hospital. Um, So he's, you know, picking up all the slack um, and he's good about that. But, you know, last year I spent nine months not being able to leave my house. Nine months, Um, which, you know, it's just it we haven't even touched the two month mark. Um, And it's not that people need to be isolated uh, or, you know, that this moment is going to teach us any great lessons for some people. It just won't. It's just okay. we need to get out and be out. Um, but during that nine months, other than the small circle of people that I knew, there wasn't a kind of connection to other things that were going on, in part because many of the things that are going on that uh, disabled folks have been asking to be included in were not being made available to us via Zoom or anything else. So I'm actually seeing the opposite where I'm having connections with people around the country that I would not have had, had had it not been for this crisis, which I think is an interesting moment. And all of the things that um, disability justice folks have been working on for a very long time and demanding and been shouted down and told, well, that's not possible, um, or that would cost too much money, or we don't know how to figure out the technology, all of a sudden when able people needed it, it's it's somehow available and everybody can, you know, can sort it out. So I've, I've seen a shift um, around that kind of connection, but I've also noticed um, that the organizing is enhanced in a way that wasn't before. And it's something I've been talking about and, you know, shouting at strangers on the internet for years um, around, you know, uh, various movements and what have you, that visibility is important and going out and being able to protest is important. But there are a lot of people that can do a lot of things from where they are that can't go out to a protest for all kinds of different reasons. And those people get excluded. And we get told that, you know, we don't matter. We're not doing anything that, you know, the the thing that needs to happen is this thing that is hyper visible. And, you know, otherwise you're, you know, like it doesn't count. Um, And what we're seeing now is that you can do a hell of a lot of damage um, to this fucked up system from your computer. Um, And we have, you know, in terms of mutual aid efforts, um, the folks in in New York that I've been connected with um, doing a lot of bail, um, you know, uh, getting people out, you know, so doing uh, raising bail money to to get people out of Rikers Island. um, That's all happened electronically. Um, with the exception of things like, you know, getting food and delivering food to people. Um, and I know, in you know, organizers all over the country um, doing, you know, doing runs and with like very little, like three or four people um, spoke to an organizer earlier this week. And it's five, you know, five people in her organization delivered over 900 you know, uh, to 900 households, not 900 bags of food, to 900 households, you know, and I'm like, oh my, like, how is that even, 
you know, how's that even possible? But it is, it is possible, right? And it's not that they, that they should be taxed or tasked with doing all of the heavy lifting there. Um, but in terms of the kinds of things that, you know, I feel are emerging uh, or becoming more visible to folks that have not been organizing for a long time, I think that, you know, the a lot of the mutual aid stuff that's going on has been really putting together, you know, Google documents of, you know, what's happening locally, um, that that's been invaluable. And we have a resource that we've been building um, at Beyond Prisons that we've been sharing with folks around the country. And now it's, you know, also uh, we've had folks in Canada um, participating and inquiries from other people to, you know, figure out how they can, how they can support and how they can help, um, help us with, with all of that stuff. And it's been, it's been incredible for me as someone who spends a lot of time in isolation, um, you know, and isolated from others that, you know, now all of a sudden, and, you know, I want to say, oh, well, you know, oh, now you could go figure it out. You know, where the hell were you like last July when I couldn't leave my house for, you know, the entire month and I was stuck and, you know, who was going through shopping then? Like, you know, it, it just wasn't there. So, um, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to finally close out and I'll, you know, uh, with this one quote from, um, from, uh, from, uh, in this book that I, that I mentioned earlier. And she says, the question then is how do we recuperate our collective capacity to make decisions about our lives? That is, how do we not only recuperate communal relations to land, but recuperate control over what we eat and the kind of life we live? How do we recuperate control over the water we drink in urban spaces, the air we breathe? This is an issue that has to be at the center of every struggle because our struggles cannot only, cannot only be oppositional, they must also be constructive and create the seeds of the society in which we want to live. This means that an element of communalism has to be built into every struggle. And it's like, I, I don't know if, um, if that resonates with, uh, with, uh, with UK and with you, Donna, but um, I wanted to share that and put that out there. Thanks, Kim. It certainly does. You know, there's a one mutual aid warehouse that's been set up in Missoula that's specifically for 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 collecting just very ordinary. It's not groceries, but it's ordinary household things. It's diapers, it's cleaning supplies, it's all of that kind of thing. But it's by no means the only mutual aid thing that's going on. I'm watching what is almost a renaissance of caring quite unlike anything I've seen before here. And I've been around long enough to know that sometimes these things go and then they kind of fade away. But the one thing I take hope from is that the mutual aid networks seem to be giving us all a bigger, more practical, and also a bigger uh, political and ecological and economic vision and i don't think that's congealed into anything yet but i think it's out there and i think it's growing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um thank you for that quote it was beautiful it uh, i think one of the opportunities that this crisis presents us with is that so much of the way that people live their lives in the united states it's through commodified pleasure mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and suddenly seeing the, the deep political economy of 
airport, for example, and the sense of crisis around that, the airline industry, the hotel industry, but just the culture of consumption. And I think that now that we're all afraid to even leave our houses and fear just every individual package that comes into the house becomes, instead of a source of joy, it's a source of fear and contagion. So I think that in addition to mutual aid, I think this is also another side of opportunity that we're seeing market society grind to a halt in a way that we never thought was possible. Mm -hmm. And it shows that it can happen. And I think that represents a moment of opportunity and I do think, like, the public health, as in that quote, the importance of the water we drink and the air we breathe, that this will give a renewed, I hope it will, I hope this will give a renewed sense of the importance, the most foundational and important things, which is life itself, um, human lives, but also lives of non-human animals and other life forms. I think at a moment like this, we are all thinking about mortality. My fear, though, is eco-fascism because we're seeing it. As yes. I said, the, yes. the campaign within the bailout bill was radical deregulation, pushing through the Keystone XL pipeline, opening up polluters. I live in Philadelphia, which is a very, very polluted city. I grew up in one that was, you know, toxic waste dump, basically. So I do think that there are real possibilities in terms of really pe people thinking about what the consequences of all of the deregulation and economic inequality, racial inequality, how it manifests itself, going full circle where we started with a quote from Lizzie Gilmore. So I think this is an opportunity, although unfortunately, um, our enemies see it as an opportunity too. Mm -hmm. So I think figuring out how to fight that is important. But my hope is that as this economic crisis deepens and we have employer-centered healthcare with so many people losing their jobs, it's hard for me to imagine how to negotiate this crisis without national health care. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely. Thank, thank all of you. Um, really tremendous conversation. I'm very grateful for all of your wisdom and your time today. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for coming on and speaking to us. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, Kim. Oh, thank you, Kay. Thank you, Donna, so much. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website, www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>